Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Passing Shot, the tennis podcast by fans. I'm Joel. I'm Kim. And today we are looking back on all the events from the Italian Open in Rome. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Kim, we're now back in Europe for the rest of the tennis season. The hard courts of Flushing have been replaced by the clay courts of Rome. And it's great. I mean, it's it's funny because, I mean, this is like one of the quickest turnarounds, I feel, um, in terms of court surfaces um, on the tour. It's a bit crazy, but I guess it's to be expected in the in the times that we're in. But I mean, just for context, I mean, we were up watching that Sasha Zverev Dominic team US Open final at what 2 3 a.m. UK time and literally the same day in Rome on the other side of the Atlantic clay court tennis was beginning I know it's mad it, that feels like a lifetime ago Joel I know it's literally been about <laughs> eight nine days but staying up till god knows what hour I got about two hours sleep that night because I was whisked off to Cornwall several hours after that so I <laughs> that kind of night just sort of blended into one long kind of weird uh, event but yes um Oh, it's it's strange, but it's good. It's good because there's loads of tennis going on. And I mean, it does make a bit of a mockery of the old uh, Roland Garros to Queens transition where <laughs> yes. you know, players used to arrive on the Eurostar <laughs> and like, go straight to Queens. Uh, but now, you know, they're flying across the Atlantic. Victoria Azarenka, as an example, you know, plays the US Open final. And then I don't know, three days later is on court in Rome. Like how how unexpected was that? I know because... Medvedev team and Zverev, who obviously got very far in in flushing, uh, decided to skip Rome. Um, and when I saw that, I was kind of thinking, you know, I feel like the the tournaments you play are based on how much money you have in the bank. Because Karenio Buster, who got to the the semifinals in the U.S. Open, he was like, nope. He he also jumped on a plane straight to. Uh, straight to Rome um, to play Nadal um, went out quite swiftly. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, it is funny to see, you know, which players are, you know, keen to do that turnaround um, because it is such a, you know, it's such a crazy transition. Not only are you going from, you know, a hard court to a clay court, but you're also battling the time zones as well, which, you know, I'm sure everyone has experienced kind of, you know, doing a transatlantic fight is not an easy easy thing to do so you know it's a very um it's a very odd situation and it, it did mean that in Rome for the men we didn't really have kind of the strongest field and really kind of the you know the interesting story kind of going into it I guess was you know Novak Djokovic Rafael Nadal returning to a clay court um you know for the first time it was in that it, it was felt like going in that it was going to be that was going to be the final um, and it was going to be interesting to see you know, how jo- Djokovic was going to react to 
you know, the fact that he got disqualified in, in the US Open, was that going to hang heavy on his shoulders or was he just going to be able to go about and kind of do the business as usual? And I think we got, I think we got a pretty clear cut answer, didn't we, in terms of, in terms of Novak Djokovic? We did. Yeah, he he stormed through and and claimed his 36th Masters title. Uh, I think it was his fifth title in Rome. So he is, uh, you know, breaking records left, right and centre. Um, yeah, I mean, I did feel I did. I did want, uh, a, you know, a Rafa Novak fine. I think the vast majority of fans were probably kind of... I don't know, salivating maybe at the prospect of that. Uh, but it wasn't to be for Rafa. He lost in the quarterfinals to Diego Schwartzman. And I was just about to say, I think that the players who perhaps didn't do so well at the US Open and who have had longer to adjust to the clay and, and get over that jet lag, well, you know, they'll do better. But obviously Rafa's been practicing on clay all summer and uh, hasn't done so well. But I think, you know, that's another thing we'll get onto, I suppose, in, in a bit. Is, is Was that just a blip? You know, the Schwartzman match, um, you know, it's going to be very different at Roland Garros over, over five sets. Um, I think on the night, you know, it was just kind of conditions. And uh, I don't know, like, should we be worried about, about Rafa going into the French? You know, do we, do we see his chances of winning as being less than normal, you know, it's taking place at a completely different time of the year. Um, and I don't know, this, this year is just throwing up some strange things. So, uh, <laughs> I don't know really. Yeah. I mean, let's start with Nadal. We'll go, we'll go on to Djokovic in a sec, but I guess, I think for me, what's interesting is that these are clay courts at a completely different time of year. And I think we always associate, uh, you know, Nadal on a, you know, a warm, hot Parisian day uh, with, you know, him being able to put loads of really heavy topspin on the ball that absolutely explodes off the surface and goes really high in the air and becomes an absolute handful to play. But I think what's interesting is the fact that we're playing on these courts in, you know, late September. I think it's a different sort of clay court and it feels, you know, I don't know if there's more moisture in the air, but it doesn't feel like the ball will necessarily pop as much as it might have done you know if they had been played on kind of earlier in the summer and maybe that gives a chance to um you know to players when they you know face up against Nadal because you know Schwartzman did show that you know to you know to my surprise and probably to a lot of people's surprise that you know Nadal is is beatable on a clay court this season and I mean I think Schwartzman did play I think Schwartzman did play really well. I, I wouldn't necessarily say, I wouldn't agree. I wouldn't necessarily say he had the game of his life, but he certainly was able to kind of live, um, live with kind of the Nadal forehand and, and ground strokes. But I think the, I certainly think the conditions and the fact that it was, I think felt a little bit slower than, you know, potentially it would have been earlier on in the years really kind of, played into the the Argentinian's hands yeah it's uh I'll, I'll be making a prayer to the weather gods that we get you know <laughs> usual uh May slash June weather in Paris uh, over the next few weeks but um yeah I mean Schwartzman got to the final so he you know obviously did have a good week and and don't forget like this is the Schwartzman that Cam Norrie you know beat at the US Open in the first round um so He's obviously kind of much happier now he's back on the clay. Um, but yeah, in that final itself, uh, you know, Djokovic, Schwartzman, I guess it went, you know, pretty par for the course. I think Novak was a breakdown in the first set, but, um, you know, seven five six three. He was a double breakdown. Double breakdown. So, uh, ah, well. Yeah, it was three love down in that first set. And um, yeah, it was a bit like, it. I mean, I can. I was kind of watching a bit of it. And um, yeah, Djokovic was definitely put into kind of a, a spot of bother, but... Yeah, we all know how mentally kind of resilient he is on a a tennis court. And 
he was able to kind of pull through um in that first set and really from there yeah he just kind of um yeah he just kind of was able to kind of just deal with it and i think what was kind of interesting with the the backdrop of the final and the semi-final semi-finals actually was the fact that there were crowd there were fans in the crowd um the the italian open organizers had announced i think to some people's surprise actually that that they were going to allow fans in for the yeah for the the latter end of the tournament but um it was it was almost kind of great to hear like real life fans kind of cheering um after like after each point and, and applauding and hearing that in person it just made me realize i miss i miss the, those sorts of sounds on a on a tennis court yeah i mean italy are doing quite well aren't they compared to other european countries for for the kind of covid stats so yeah it's good that they were able to do that and and hopefully it was you know safe enough and uh yeah it's nice to just hear clapping and cheering again isn't it rather than you know piped in piped in crowd noise but um yeah Novak now has the most masters 1000 titles of all he's overtaken Rafa uh he's got 36 and I think um as a result he has also extended his uh number of weeks at world number one so he's going to overtake uh Pete Sampras's total of 286 weeks so yeah two kind of more milestones for, for Djokovic and uh and his fans and you know I don't I don't think that I ever expected him to have a bit of a a knock-on effect from that default at the US Open. I think, you know, he is such a kind of consummate professional. I don't think it, he would have let that get to him. But, um, I mean, yeah, I, he obviously just kind of got on with the job and... In this in this case, like no dodgy uh, no dodgy incidences with with line judges and such like. Um, another player though, Joel, uh, who's had a pretty good week, Denis Shapovalov. He's into the top ten now. Uh, for the first time after getting to the semi-finals, and he only narrowly lost to Schwartzman in that last set tiebreak. So, um, you know, he's continuing his his decent form from the from the hard courts, and he'll be one to watch. I think at, at Roland Garros just to see see how he's going to get on get on there as well. Yeah, he had a really good he had a really good uh, run in uh, in Rome. He got to I think he's now into the top 10 for the first time. I mean, Shapovalov and also Kasper Ruud get getting to the semi-finals. They both had excellent tournaments. That that match though between Shapovalov and Schwartzman was a real attritional affair. It was over 3 hours. I think both players felt like they could have won it, but obviously Schwartzman came through. Um but yeah, I mean Shapovalov really cuz kind of played really well coming into, you know, post lockdown. Um, he's really kind of started, I think kind of, you know, he kind of drifted a little bit last, you know, last season, but really he's started, I think he's started here really well. And it's good to see him kind of apply himself onto, you know, a clay court, because that will be a, you know, unfamiliar kind of territory for him. I always kind of associate him with a, you know, with, with a hard court, but um, yeah, it's great to see other players kind of doing well and, and particularly in that kind of next gen. And we're having another, you know, another player making that bait breakthrough in, in the top 10, you know, following players like Zverev, Sissipas, Kachanov, Medvedev. Um, we've got another one there. So it's really kind of great to see, I guess, that sort of transition of players who played in the, you know, the next gen finals, um, make that transition into the, and realise it into kind of the top 10 in the, you know, in the the ATP rankings. Um but yeah, yeah, I was just kind of going back to, to Novak Djokovic, though. I, I think it's kind of interesting. I was reading an article earlier um, by Jim White in The Telegraph, and you know, he was talking about you know, the, the Djokovic default. And he kind of, 
talked about in sport around anti-heroes and whether you know Novak Djokovic is in this category of sporting anti-heroes i.e players who we love to hate the players who provide fans with you know almost kind of justification for kind of supporting their rivals and I think like this was you know this last kind of two weeks or whatever just kind of I think kind of shown that kind of category that's you know I think some people would put Djokovic in because you know he had a really kind of you know devilish moment um you know in in New York obviously with that that default but then he's able to kind of just go on a court and produce absolutely um you know is then able to kind of do the business and and go on and win and it feels like you know he is the anti you know some people say he's the anti-hero of tennis much like you know Conor McGregor is the anti-hero of UFC or, you know, Floyd Mayweather is, you know, again, another sort of Marmite character in, in boxing. I mean, where do you stand on that? Do you think that's a, do you think that's a fair assessment or? Well, Joel, who on earth is Colin McGregor and what is UFC? <laughs> I'm not into, is that like boxing? Because I'm not into, um. Oh, sorry. Ultimate fighting championship. Oh, yeah. right. Okay. Conor McGregor. Conor <laughs> Some McGregor. of our listeners may not know. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to say like golf or something. Um, yeah, I don't know really. I'm just trying to think of another sport, you know, like those characters that I, I don't want to use the expression that people love to hate, but I, I know where, um, you know, this article is coming from. Um, and I think something like the default obviously is not going to, uh, help matters I suppose some people I think uh have always been a bit anti-Novak and I, I do think a lot of the time it's it's yeah too it's too harsh I think I don't think he deserves some of the vitriol that he gets but then there have been certain things this year where he really hasn't done himself any favors um I think you know it can be healthy for a sport to have these kind of um you know a bit like when we saw with Medvedev last year when he was like baiting the crowd you know it's it's great for the storylines isn't it and you know the kind of matchups and things but I think yeah I think as long as it's done in a in a in a nice way I, I don't know if you can if people get what I'm trying to say and it's not sort of really deeply personal and and horrible um but yeah I, I get the gist of of uh of what they were trying to say with that I don't know if our listeners would agree. I think it's an interesting one because I think it's a bit like, you know, do you know with superheroes, it's like, does every hero need need a villain? Or, yeah, I, I don't know if you ever used to watch the show Gladiators, Joel. It was on in the 90s. <laughs> Absolutely best TV show that has ever been made. Uh, they used to have, like, the Wolfman and everyone yeah, used to, like, boo him. But it was just a joke, you know. Like, <laughs> mm. we loved him, really, but it was... Like, like a sort of pantomime, played, pantomime yeah, villain. pantomime villain, yeah. <laughs> That's the best analogy I could think of. I think, I mean, for me, I would say he's firmly kind of put himself in that category with the, you know, with the default. We obviously know that, you know, he didn't, he didn't mean it, but um, he is going to be a player. I think that is just going to, he will, you know, his rec, his tennis on the court will, you know, speak for itself. And he has, you know, the potential to, you know, write even more records in, in the future. But I think he will ultimately kind of go down as a player that people do love to hate and will have that sort of, Marmite effect that players like Nadal and Federer, you, you, they don't really get that sort of assessment um, in the way that someone like Novak, Novak Djokovic has. Exactly. And I think, you know, with Federer, there's a lot of people that just see him as a genius and they won't ever 
you know, think of him in any other way. You know, he's just kind of had that persona attached to him since kind of years ago. And it's like, he's just seen in that way. And and perhaps if you actually delve, you know, more closely, um, it's not as it appears on the surface, you know, but, you know, that's that's just, uh, I guess, the kind of myth, myths surrounding certain players. Um, but oh, I don't know. I mean, at least we have, you know, we have some characters. I mean, Nick Kyrgios is another divisive uh, character as well. And, you know, some people think he's good, some, you're, you know, good for the sport. Some people think he's bad. I guess he plays a bit of an anti-hero character in certain ways as well. So uh, it's an interesting, interesting perspective. It's all setting it up for French Open final where I still feel like even if it didn't happen in Rome, it's surely going to happen. Well, I think Novak it's going to happen Rafa. in Paris. Well. The Novak Rafa final. Hero versus anti-hero, let's have it. Um, but uh, well, that, I mean, that remains for, for another day. One, one player, though, we did have our eye on um, in Rome, uh, a player who made his breakthrough and actually won his first ever ATP match against San Vavinka, no less, was Italian Lorenzo Musetti, who beat Vavrinka and then followed that up by beating Nishikuri as well. Um, he became the first player born in 2002 to win an ATP match, which you know makes me feel really old, Kim. But um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I was watching kind of the highlights on YouTube. He looks an absolutely fantastic prospect for Italian tennis, for world tennis even. And um, yeah, he just, he, he, he bageled Stan Wawrinka in his, you know, for his first ever ATP win. I mean, it can't go much better than that, can it really? Yeah, I know. Sort of. I mean, people had been talking about him a bit. I think over the last year or so, because he had won the 2019 Australian Open Juniors. Um, so he's, you know, we had heard brief bits about him. I've, I've never seen him like play before this week. Um, but very promising for Italian tennis because they've, you know, already got Yannick Sinner, who's another young, promising player, and uh, Mazzetti's even younger. I think he's going to break into the top 200 after after this week um after after Rome his performance in Rome. But yeah, he um really exciting. Also single-handed backhand is, is everyone just breaking through with a with a single-handed backhand Joel? Is that is that the new thing? I thought that was really interesting because what is it about like the new gen and single-handed backhands because you know we've got Shapovalov who's on a hot streak, hot streak of form at the moment single-handed backhand um Sissipas as well obviously has got the the single-handed backhand going on um you know Dominic team um uh, yeah it's interesting that I guess kind of all the younger guys I don't know I don't know what it is about the the single-handed backhand that is you know I don't know if it's a coincidence or it's like being coached by um you know, it's being it's being coached, and that's the way it's going over kind of the double handed approach. Because you know, I felt kind of growing up that the double handed backhand was, you know, was the dominant weapon on that side, and almost kind of the single handed backhand was, you know, was potentially going to go extinct. Now, I don't know if you know these players growing up kind of were watching people like Richard Gasquet and Stan Ravinka and were like, oh my God, this is one of the most beautiful shots known to, <laughs> you know, known to tennis. I want to try and replicate it because, um, because yeah, there seems to be an absolute, um, you know, flurry of them, flurry of them coming in and kind of watching Massetti, his, the power he's able to generate um, from his single-handed backhand is really quite remarkable. And it does, it does weirdly have, uh, it reminds me of uh, Vavrinka 
um and his single-handed backhand and it was almost kind of like a you know he was almost kind of playing his own He's playing his, his own shot in it. In a it could have been his yeah. father almost, uh, in terms of the <laughs> age difference between the two of them, uh, which is a bit scary. But uh, yeah, he came through. You know, he got wins over Nishkori and, and Stan. Um, he ended up losing to Dominic Kerpfer, who actually, he had a pretty good week because he lost to Novak, didn't he? I think he got set off Novak. So, um, and I see that in Hamburg, he's been he's been doing all right as well. So perhaps a bit of a... A dark horse, someone you don't want to face uh, in, in Ronald Garros as well. Um, but yes, I think let's move on to the women's side of, of, the, uh, of the event, Joel, um, after a short break. So, Joel, we've uh, covered the men. Uh, the women's final, again, we've had a bit of a disappointing women's final in a sort of premier event. Uh, this one actually did take place, unlike the one in Cincinnati where Osaka withdrew before the final. But um, yeah, we had Simona Halep, Karolina Pliskova. Uh, Simona Halep won the first set and then at 2-1 down in the second, uh, Pliskova retired from the match with, I think it was a, a thigh injury. Um, obviously, you know, with Roland Garros coming up, she's got to be careful and didn't want to take any chances by, you know, carrying on. Uh, especially, you know, Halep, you know, she won the first set to love. Probably would have been quite an uphill battle if you're injured to try and win two sets in a row against Halep, who's, I think, unbeaten since coming back from lockdown. Um, but yeah, what do you make from that? Do you think Halep is is the dead favourite, dead cert favourite to, to win the French now? Not what we've seen from her this week? Yeah, I mean, she's looked in, for me, she's looked in imperious form. I, I To be honest, I think even if Pliskova was fully fit, I still think Simona Halep would would have won it and probably won it comfortably. Um, the the tennis that she's been playing, she's really kind of just, you know, picked up you know where she left off. Um, I know she didn't play the US Open, but she's not let that, uh, you know, impact her uh, preparations for Roland Garros. And yeah, I do think, you know, the fact that obviously Osaka is not going to be at Roland Garros, um, she really is going to be the, you know, the firm favourite and, and rightly so, because, you know, she's, you know, one of the toughest prospects I think you can face on on a clay court at the moment in the women's game. She's just absolutely everywhere. Um, her kind of, her movement around the court really is kind of like at the opposite end of the spectrum of, of Pliskova, who I feel is a bit less kind of just relies on the shots to hit winners. Um, she's not really known, I think, for her kind of movement. But um, yeah, Halep kind of coming through. And um, yeah, I do think she's going to be the one to beat, um, you know, without Osaka, without Ash Barty um, in Paris. Um, I mean, just kind of looking at her results, uh, kind of going into the final, you know, the match against Muguruza, for me, that was almost kind of Grand Slam final level um, sort of quality. Um, Muguruza, another player who I think has kind of put herself into the bracket um, of, um, you know, potential favourites for the French Open. But I do think Simona Halep at the moment is playing a level of tennis that no one else is is really playing. I agree. I think she's looking hot for the French and, uh, you know, especially, you know, she had to play, yeah, as you said, Muguruza, also Putintseva, Yastremska, you know, Paulini, not, not easy, not easy people. Um, and I mean, I just think she's kind of, yeah, her movement. I, I, I feel like, you know, yes, Muguruza is, is a contender, but she's still a bit hot and cold, I think. And obviously Azarenka had a, 
had an impressive week as well in Rome, considering she'd just literally flown in from New York. Um, you know, she reached the quarters. So you'd have to say, well, obviously, given her run of form, that she's also looking like uh, a potential candidate for the French as well. But I think, I think I would give Halep the edge over both of them on, on any given day, really. Um, but I mean, it's good. Good to see Muguruza up there. She beat Joe Conta, uh, so a bit annoying for British fans. Uh, in fact, Conta, you know, she's split from from Thomas Hogstead, um, which you know they've been having a trial period, which has now ended. So, not sure where, where that's going to leave Joe. You know, she's now kind of coachless again. So, <laughs> well, I was reading yesterday; it's left Hogstead in uh, Ostapenko's box. Uh, from what I heard yesterday. So I don't know if that's a partnership that's going to happen um, instead. But yeah, um, yeah, Joe lost to, to Muguruza uh, quite comfortably, actually, 4-1. and one. But I mean, Muguruza, we know, is Grand Slam pedigree. And I think, as you said, she she still has that tendency, I think, to blow, blow hot and cold. But I always feel like when she blows hot, she is very hard to. Oh yeah. You know, there's not many. Yeah. There's not many players who will be able to kind of live with her and beat her. Simona Hallett, you know, showed in the semi-finals. She is one of them, but I don't. I you know, there's. I don't think there's met many others. Um, Marquetta Bondrusova, Joel. She reached the semi-finals, and obviously last year's finalist at Roland Garros. Where do you see her potentially? Uh, you know, reaching at Roland Garros. I feel like she's a unknown quantity, even though we we know what she can do on clay. I, I still feel like, I, I don't know what to expect from her. <laughs> I think we're going to go into the French Open and, and completely forget about what <laughs> yeah. and, and her ped, you know, and her pedigree because, you know, she's been, let's be honest, she's been out in the wilderness. She's had a few iffy results here and there. Um, but yeah, it was great to kind of see her come back. And she obviously loves playing on a clay court because, um, yeah, she got to the, the semifinals with not really much form, you know, coming into it. So, um, you know, another kind of good performance from her this week. Let's talk about, though, one of the results that I think a lot of people uh, it caught the eye of. Victoria Azarenka versus Kenin, double bagel um, in the first, I think it was in the first round or second round. Um, you know, as you said, Azarenka literally probably just got off the flight, didn't know what's what, time zones, court surface, etc. And she just absolutely dismantled um <laughs> dismantled kenin love and love kenin lest we forget is the reigning australian open champion um yeah it was not it was not pretty um and azarenka just i think she's just in this mode at the moment where she just wants to play as much tennis as possible she's obviously feeling in the groove with her game right now and she just wants to play yeah, she just wants to get on a tennis court, you know, wh- wherever that is, whatever surface that's on. Yeah, I was not expecting that scoreline. I thought, oh, we could be in for a really tasty close match here. But, <laughs> um, I mean, Kenan was her doubles partner in... Uh, I know, in how awkward is that? But maybe, maybe it makes it less that? awkward because they must get on pretty well. You know, I guess Azarenka probably knows her game very well. So I don't know if that had any sort of impetus. But yes, we don't often see someone, you know, like Sphere Kenin, like top five player, Grand Slam champion, get double bageled. Um, she, I don't know what's going on. If if that, that doesn't bode too well for her, Roland Garros. Kim, I, I watched the highlights and um, I think it just kind of, you know, for, for me, it just looked like, 
Kenin on a on a clay on a slow clay court, you know, with the type of game that she plays, um, the ball just sits up way too much. And when the ball sits up for a player like Azarenka, it's normally going to end in a winner. Um, and I felt like that was the the majority of the match. And I think you know, if I was looking at Kenin's game, um, I think she's going to need to be able to be a bit more aggressive uh when it comes to you know playing on a clay court because i felt she was a bit like just a bit more bit too passive in terms of just you know hitting ground strokes that were you know top spin and and being there to being there to be hit um i don't think she deserved to lose love and love um you know based on how many points she won um but you know that that's how that's how it happened and as you said you don't often see a current grand slam champion get double bageled and um interestingly on twitter someone actually put out um all the all the kind of current grand slam champions who have been in the past double bageled um and kim i'm gonna kind of test your test your brains here and listeners as well i'm gonna test your brains as well can you think of any other um reigning grand slam champions who've had a double bagel um against them whilst whilst owning a, a major Blimey. I mean, <laughs> probably someone I'll give you, who... I'll give you, yeah, I'll give you a clue because okay. the, the last, since um, since 2000, there have been six occasions, including the one just happened in 2020. So we've had one in 2000, 2002, 2005, 2012 and 2018. So can you think of any of the Grand Slam champions, I guess, from those years that you think were susceptible to a double bagel. Oh, right. So it has to be in the I same year that they won their slam. Okay. Um, so it's probably someone who maybe like had only won like one slam or something. And then it maybe isn't as surprising. Mm. I don't know. Uh, 2000, you said 2008, didn't you? Um, 2018. Oh, 2018. Oh, who won slams mm. in 2018? <laughs> uh, Starker. It's so long ago. Double bageled. Oh my gosh. I don't know. Uh, I want to go and say someone for an earlier year, like Francesca Schiavone. Oh, she won a slam, and she or maybe like a Sam Stozer, no, like players yeah. who just got one slam. A yeah, no, so you were on the right track with one slam because in 2018, the last time it happened was Yelena Ostapenko. Uh, of um, course, she lost Love and Love uh, to, to Chiang Wang um, in Pekin. Um, we had Anna Ivanovic lose to Roberta Vinci in 2012 um, in Montreal. Oh. Maria Sharapova lost Love and Love to Lindsay Davenport in Indian Wells in 2005. Uh, listeners might might remember that one. Um, and then, yeah, we had Mary Pierce and Monica Sellers also lose Love and Love to Jennifer Capriati and Martina Hingis in Rome and Miami in 2002 and 2000. So, I mean, there's... It, there are some there are some big players there actually who've lost you know who've lost love and love and it almost kind of surprises me actually but um yeah i mean it, it was not it's not a good list to be on is it though no but i think actually if you looking back further even martina navratilova got double bageled uh, back in the day and that was by that was by chris Everett. but uh it happens to the best of them i suppose <laughs> but um yeah i guess it's one of those like weird scoring kind of 
quirks of, of tennis that like this can happen um but uh yeah kenan will be hoping that she doesn't have any further double bagels uh at least if she you know that she's not on the receiving end of them um but yes it did show that azarenka's in very good shape still let's hope her body kind of holds up it's probably done her a bit of good actually losing a bit earlier in rome to give her a bit more time to prepare for the french open um because that will soon be upon us joel i think we'll be back uh later this week to do our kind of preview pod for the french open um just a couple of other things going on in the tennis world though uh that our listeners may or may not have kind of caught up on fed cup is no longer the fed cup it's now the Billie Jean King Cup, which I think is a, a fair move. And I think that's, you know, well-deserved and warranted. When that news happened, I don't know about you, but it made me realise, like, what does the Fed Cup actually, what did it actually <laughs> Federer, mean? No, um, um, Federation, was it not? <laughs> <laughs> Federation, yeah, which it, it just felt like, I, I mean, it just felt like dead space, didn't it? Like it could, it could have more of a, it, it did felt like it could have, more of a meaning and um you know it's uh i think it's a great honor and it feels fitting as well i think to have you know a legend of the game like you know billy jean king um have the you know such a global tournament kind of named after her um it's interesting to kind of hear from her and and, and hear her kind of ambitions for you know the billy jean king cup in the future um because i feel like it is one of those events that we've always talked about as like in need of a a restructure or a formatting change like you know the davis cup has done um but it's interesting to hear that billy jean king is looking to basically get as many countries involved as possible um because the davis cup have 142 countries um involved whereas the uh, billy jean king cup or kind of the Fed Cup up until now has only 116. So I think it's interesting. She wants kind of basically better equality in terms of, you know, tennis is a global game. Let's get every, you know, let's get every single country possible, um, you know, involved in terms of, uh, in terms of participation. Yeah, because I mean, they had restructured it, hadn't they? It was supposed to take place kind of over two weeks or you know, 10 days in Budapest. Oh, of course, year. yes. It didn't happen, mm. obviously, because of COVID. But um, hopefully next year that will happen and then, Maybe, you know, it's quite nice, actually, the first event in that style will be the Billie Jean King Cup. It is a bit of a mouthful, though, Joel. I wonder if they could just call it like the, the Billie Cup. I was Cup. just thinking that. I feel like a lot of people <laughs> will be getting their words like the wrong way around, trying to say that. Um, and also, it's been, you know, it was 50 years, um, you know, from the creation of the Virginia Slim circuit, which, you know, eventually led to the, the WTA. So it's kind of marking that anniversary of the original nine uh, as well. So that's, you know, a, a fitting fitting time to kind of, be be renaming it um but yeah i mean we've got the french open coming up as i said just a moment ago joel we've had a few positive coronavirus tests uh, it's got rid of some players from the from the qualies dennis isterman's out one of my favorites absolutely <laughs> gutted <laughs> um no, I, these people aren't particularly happy are they no they're not uh, um yeah we've had some i mean french open qualifying is going on at the moment we've had players had to be withdrawn um, because of positive tests. Um, yeah, Dennis Istomin, um, Damir Jumhur from Bosnia um, as well is probably one of the higher profile names that's been withdrawn. Um, interestingly, he kind of wrote on Instagram and said he was really confident it was basically a false positive and he wanted a second test and the French Open basically said no. 
Um, and he was his, he was kind of basically alluding to the fact that, well, if I was Rafael Nadal, I bet I would have got a second test. Um, so I I thought it was kind of interesting. It sounds like obviously the French Open are being very kind of very strict when it comes to their testing. Um, I I was kind of reading um, Sasha Vickery from from America was saying the, she tweeted French Open is playing no games with that COVID test. Um, so it sounds like they are being really kind of stringent. Um, but yeah, I do want I do. It does raise an interesting issue about like if a really high profile player got a positive test would they would they bend the rules would they flex them just to make sure it wasn't a well, it wasn't a false positive what if rafa tests positive like the day before well, the french open final i, I mean know, that is well. going to be a massive talking point but i mean a rule is a rule so you know i i don't know it's going to be interesting players have got to be blimmin careful what they do and where they go and who they get in contact with uh, i mean they're staying in two biosecure hotels uh, over the fortnight so but i mean there are going to be fans on site aren't there but i think i think they've had to reduce the numbers that they originally wanted to because you know france is seeing an awful lot of infections you know every day rates are going up you know we're actually sort of you know, across like the UK and France and everywhere, like putting more restrictions back into place. So isn't maybe the ideal time to have thousands of people descending on Paris, but um, it'll be interesting to see, yeah, if this is run as well as generally the US Open was run in terms of COVID protocols. I feel like the impression, the impression social media at the moment gives me is that it's been a lot more lax than what it was at the the u.s open but you know let's let's see let's wait let's wait and see in terms of uh you know how it progresses it's very obviously very early days um in terms of kind of what goes on in ronald garris but i think like the added complexity of bringing fans into it i mean it's that feels still a bit um bit surprising given i mean we you know we we record this podcast in the uk and today it was announced that you know all um, sport with spectators has been um, shelved and paused and you know to still kind of you know the fact that you know the idea of we're going to go watch tv next week and you know see Roland Garros and have fans there yeah it's almost a, a odds <laughs> what's happening in the in the UK across the channel so um you know we'll see we'll see what happens um we will be covering the Roland Garros the French Open um with our round by round coverage like we very much did with the US Open. Um, And that starts actually with our draw preview episode, which will be coming up on Thursday evening. The Thursday draw, we believe, um, is at a quarter to five um, UK time. So we're going to be looking to put out a podcast previewing the draw on Thursday evening. And of course, if you listen to that episode, you will be able to hear, very excitingly, Kim, our collector set, player announcement so our six new players we want you to predict where they get to um in Roland Garros I'm kind of excited we haven't really discussed have we Kim who who the six who the six are going to be you haven't earmarked any any names to me yet I have some in my mind they've just kind of sprung to me uh, but we'll keep it a secret until until Thursday for any (laughs) listeners uh but yeah I mean if there's any players that our listeners kind of particularly want to be in our collector set then send us a tweet because uh always happy to have suggestions as well 
Yes. Uh, but yeah, make sure you do uh, subscribe to us uh, on your podcasting platform of choice if you want to stay up to date for Roland Garros um, over the next couple of weeks. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcast, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you've been enjoying our coverage over the last few weeks um, on Apple Podcasts, make sure to leave us a rating and comment. And you can follow us on social media as well to keep up to date. Uh, we're on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook uh, at Passing Shot Pod. And if you want to get in touch via email, you can do so at uh, PassingShotPod at gmail.com. Yes. So we will be back on Thursday evening with a preview of Rolly G as, as Andy Murray. <laughs> Rolly G. Andy Murray always loves to call it. Um, so, yeah, I'm bringing Rolly G back. Um, but, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see you. We'll see you on Thursday. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.